0: Welcome to Rogues on the Road. Discovered in 1802, naked and afraid, under the deep and unforgiving canopy of Central Park, this indigenous duo sold their share of the Louisiana Purchase, swam to Port Chester, and set up shop with their co host, the Standby Gypsy. From their humble beginnings, Rogues on the Road has quickly become the longest running. And most popular food and beverage podcast in recorded history. So, sit back, pour a cold pint, and tighten your spray skirt, you ninny-muggin.
1: Welcome to another episode of Road on the Road. Uh, we're here virtually in Charleston, South Carolina, the Heron Farms. I'm
0: Rich. And I am Matt, and uh, we are introducing Sam Norton of Heron Farms in sunny, I'm hoping it's sunny, uh, South Carolina, Charleston. Uh, Sam is the uh, owner, founder of a indoor saltwater farm that is farming something a little different than what we typically expect. So, uh, so Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for Thank coming. We're, we're glad you you joined us virtually here. Um, and uh, this is kind of an unusual farm. And uh, it, I know you you won a first first place uh, at the South Carolina Department of Agriculture uh, their acre startup competition. And I, I guess it kind of went from there. Uh, yes. So so how how um, did you, how'd you get your start? Well, before that competition.
1: I uh, I'll go way back because the the, the story's beginnings involve kayaking and you guys i read sort of met through kayaking. Um,
0: <laughs> That's cool. Uh,
1: yeah, but, just a little. But uh, senior year at the College of Charleston, I was researching saltwater agriculture. Um, the Boeing Company and a couple other aviation companies were growing a plant called Salicornia uh, in the deserts around the Abu Dhabi Airport with with nothing but seawater from the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf and uh, they were pressing the oils out of the seeds for biofuels I thought it was fascinating um I ended up interviewing for their team and when I started researching the plant they were talking about I kind of was like had this, oh my god moment on the on the interwebs you know the google images of and all that and stuff but I realized that it was the plant that I had eaten up kayaking uh, I had eaten while kayaking around Charleston and I called sea pickle, but other people called sea beans or samphire or, uh, there's all sorts of monikers for it. Yeah, anyways, We know it's a uh, it uh, sea asparagus. Is that the same thing? Right. Right. It's the same thing. Okay. Um, it's the same thing. And so there is a, so anyways, I, I traveled through Spain after graduating and, and saw it being farmed over there outdoors. And, and when I went back to Charleston, I, uh, got into the master's program that I'm still in right now, looking to finish up uh, next fall, and learn how to grow it. Um, I tried a bunch of bad methods. I I basically tried to grow it in areas of the marsh that needed to be restored so that as we scaled seawater agriculture, we'd also benefit the marsh, and that turned out not to work. And so um, each time I did an experiment, I got closer towards the indoor model and um, closer towards kind of being a bad steward of nature, actually. And so, uh, last year, once we did, had become, once we knew that the indoor model was going to be the best fit, we decided to um, replant one square foot of marsh for every pound we sold, because the um, despite what the hydroponics folks will tell you, indoor farming is not um, good for the uh, environment um, as a whole and so um i presented an idea of seawater agriculture to the acre board uh, during that competition and it won thankfully because of good timing mostly in luck and then um proceeded along growing plants indoors and outdoors and kind of failing mostly and um but every small success uh, the chefs would buy it and that was a good sign so they were trying to buy more than i could grow and um, we just won the Harbor Accelerator Startup Competition down in Charleston, and that gave us the seed funding to open up our indoor farm, um, which we had our first harvest on April 14th, right as all of our restaurant customers evaporated, um, you <laughs> oh, know, a- just temporarily. But, a- April
0: um, 14th of this year. That's correct. Wow. Uh.
1: Um, so on the one hand, it was the worst possible time to... Uh, introduce a new product to the market on the other hand uh, it 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 showed us what we needed to do to be a meaningful company and and not just sell a luxury good and so we switched our packaging over to retail size packages that are compostable and we uh, didn't have the certifications necessary for larger retail environments so we went to CSAs and the CSA model is is, is actually working, and now in the process of scaling from one shipping container growing farm to six, and that's basically the gist of the. That's awesome. How does uh, how does indoor farming look like? Indoor farming is is not as luxurious and sophisticated as as the the folks uh, would like you to believe. So the reason that you can grow. Well, okay, so it uses a lot less space and a lot less water, and that's basically why the indoor lettuce growers of the world um, um, uh, uh, tout it as as a as a novel method. It, it is novel. The unfortunate thing is that you have to replace the sun, and so your cost of goods sold, um, your and your capex to buy all those lights, is very high. And and the reason a lettuce farmer would make money growing indoors is because um they would be closer to the market and so you wouldn't have to have it the head of lettuce sent from salinas california to um to charleston for instance it could just right. come come from charleston but uh, the real one of the real keys to making lettuce grow that fast and and consistent is by manipulation of the uh indoor environment and that includes yeah. Um, doubling the carbon dioxide inside of the growing space, and so that's kind of the hidden, uh, not talked about secret of indoor ag is that we actually double the ambient carbon dioxide in order to increase photosynthesis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's complex. <laughs> <laughs> so it, you know, it's almost it, you know when we talk about global warming and and uh, you know carbon dioxide building up in the atmosphere, plants aren't aren't really not all afraid of that at this point (laughs) no
1: that's, that's that's the conservative you know if if you look at it from a narrow view you could you are can make a good argument that that increased co2 emissions are good for plants because it is if you compensate for nutrients if you have the same amount of nutrients in the soil uh then the plant gets larger but it's it's less nutrient dense and so it's just larger for without any meat to it you know but um we compensate
0: for nutrients in the indoor environment. That's what allows us to use so much CO2. Wow. That's cool. And, you know, so if if you're controlling different variables, you know, inside, uh, you know, an inside farm, so to speak, what were some of the challenges you had, you know, when you, when you started this, you said that, you know, you wanted to go out and replant areas to, to restore... Uh, the sea asparagus to its natural habitat. What, okay. what were the challenges that, how come that didn't seem to take? What were some of the, the challenges?
1: Oh, um, there's, 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 there's many, but since you guys had the, the oyster farmer on last episode, uh, it's basically the same challenges that, that he identified, which are in order to do anything in the marine space, if you can float a toothpick on the water, then you're considered in enough water to be in Army Corps territory. So um, the, the regulatory bodies in the salt marsh are the Department of Natural Resources, the Office of Coastal Resource Management, the, Depar- uh, excuse me, the Army Corps of Engineers, and then you have, of course, the landowners. If you're anywhere near Charleston or Sydney, you have uh, people that can afford to um, have a dock or live on the water. Um, They may not want farming to exist in the marsh. And you don't want to farm the marsh. Uh, In in order to farm these plants consistently, we needed uh, soil manipulation. Um, Couldn't do that in the marsh. Couldn't till. Hard to get to on a boat. And then the main problem with it is that um, this plant, salicornia, that people call sea asparagus or samphire, sea beans or what have you, um, it, it flowers when the days get...
0: Shorter at the end of July, and so
1: you only oh. get a growing season outdoors between April and July. Oh, wow! Oh, that's that's short, yeah. So, by doing internally, you get to expand that time frame, right? Uh, um, year round, year round?
0: Year round. Yep. yeah. Well, that's great. And are there, um, are there natural, uh, you know, uh, pests, uh, disease, anything like that that is that affects sea asparagus? Uh,
1: outdoors, there are there are several. Uh, in terms of pests, there's a... Uh, it's in the Leptoptera family or something like that, but it's a small beetle that likes succulent halophytes. Halophy- halophyte is a, is a salt-tolerant plant, so anytime you see a, a plant living in the marsh or um, living in one of the alkaline flats of Utah or something like that, it's called a halophyte. Um when people talk about seawater agriculture, um, they're talking about they're talking about doing agriculture with halophytes, basically. Um, but so another pest would be this isn't really a pest; it's, it's quite beautiful, but it does eat your plant outdoors. Is the smallest butterfly in North America is called the eastern pygmy blue butterfly, and it oh, yeah. lays its larvae on uh, succulent halophytes, uh, salicornia, and its perennial ancestor. And then of course you have down here hurricanes. Um, massive tide, sea level rise, and um, lots of recreational
0: activities. So those yeah, are some right. of pests. Yeah. Interesting. And it, I, the interesting thing when when we found out about your farm too is I thought that's, that that uh, sea bean, sea asparagus, was on, only a West Coast foraging type uh, plant. I did not realize that it was on the eastern side of the United States. How? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: This, this, it's everywhere. Sorry.
0: How far north does it grow? Hmm.
1: The annual variety, that's better for agriculture and tastes a little bit better for, for the same reasons that we eat a lot of annuals, uh, grows much further north, all the way into Prince Edward Island. Um, oh, wow. It's split off from its perennial ancestor in order to it wouldn't die. It wouldn't die because of the cold in the winter. It would die because of, it was an annual, and it would just reproduce and, and finesse, and, and you would. Uh, it was able to move further north. But the, the, this plant has salicornia, the genus, um, is in the amaranth family, like spinach and beef, and it it has about 80 or so species that we kind of consider uh, taxonomically different, which live all over the planet, except for Antarctica.
0: Wow, I had no, wow. I had no idea. I mean, on our, yeah. we've done quite a few kayak ventures up in the North Atlantic, up, up off the coast of Maine, and, and maybe we just haven't... We didn't look for it. Didn't see it. Right. Um, we also had it when we were up in uh, Banff, Canada. That was our. That oh, was wow. our. That was our first experience with. Yeah. We had never. I had never heard of it. Uh. I mean, I may have heard of it, but we had it paired. Obviously, and you know, we'll get into the, the food part of this, but we had it paired with some native trout, and it was well, one of the most. Fantastic. Multi, yeah. Well, um. Foraged. Uh, plants that we had had. Sure. We, we did have it again where we ordered it online from uh, Earthly Goods uh, out in, I think, Chicago. It arrived and actually had a very... It, it had like a woody... Almost right. like... A, quite a bit of stemminess to it.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. Um, is that common? That
0: is the main... That is the main um, problem with
1: with agriculture with this, this plant, um, it's not a problem necessarily. You can necessarily, um, uh, so it's a leafless succulent halophyte and it does not, every time it sends out a lateral branch, it needs to support the lateral branch by having more lignin in its, in its middle stem and its meristem. Right. right. Okay.
0: Um,
1: and as it increases lignin, it, it, it decreases in edibility because a human, we're not set up to chew that much. Right. Um, plant, plant matter, and so yeah, the the, the the one of the main issues people have is that they confuse the perennial ancestor with the annual one that we grow. and The perennial one is always much woodier, um, it's, it's very common down here in the south. But so, the reason you may not have seen it while kayaking in the northeast is because the annual uh is a little bit more uh, inconspicuous and kind of hard to find. But okay. so yeah, the woodiness, woodiness is a big
0: problem, okay? All right, so that was. Uh... And and because that was comp- we were expecting what we got, when we were out in Banff, and it was uh, it was not it, it yeah, and the <laughs> flavor the flavor was okay, but it was an enormous amount of work to right. to get through it. So that's right. And and looking at your website now and looking at the photos of your sea asparagus and your crop, it I mean it just looks like a beautiful succulent that looks very reminiscent of what we had. When we it first Melts had it back. in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. We, we try to control the woodiness by speeding up plant growth and then increasing density. So, that, um, I was telling you, if you have lateral branches, you get, you get woodiness. So, if you put a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of plants right together, they will all fight over the photosynthetically active radiation, in our case, coming from an LED, and they will grow straight up. And so, you'll have one plant equal to one basically um, long cylinder. And so, if you can do that, if you increase density, you
0: decrease weight Is what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: How long? How, how long is the uh, growing process from seed to edible?
0: Good question, Rich. I was going to ask well, that thank too. Thank
1: you. Question. <laughs> uh, Rich, it's about 60 days. Um, oh, sure. To, to, so we and, and and the salt gets increased across its lifetime. So the annual plant in, in nature germinates in february and march coinciding with heavy rains in the south or or ice melt in the north um whenever right. there's a little bit more availability of fresh water but it takes about 60 and that's because we're still dealing with a, a wild plant so right. lettuce has a few thousand more years of um domestication and so it's it can be done in an indoor environment about 40 days and and we're speeding up our processes now right, right, right.
0: and and, wow. and how how is it I mean, is it when we were talking about oysters? They receive seeds. They receive from a a, you know a seed farm, and then they they basically grow these you know seeds, which are you know the the baby oysters, so to speak. But how how do you do you take do you take seed? Does it does the plant actually seed? You take those seeds and then propagate those. Require? Yeah. No. uh, So
1: indoors, we grow. A plant called Salicornia europaea. Um, it's the it's the it, it has seeds available in Europe uh, from a friend of mine who breeds it over there. And then mm-hmm. for restoration, we use a plant called Salicornia bigelovii, and that is uh, one that's native to Charleston area and the East Coast generally. And so we we grow two different plants, and so you can get the seeds to so our the seeds to our restoration efforts are sourced um, as close to the restoration body, you know, the restoration project as possible so that they're genetically kind of similar to the environment. Um, and then the indoors, we're trying to be just American capitalists basically and kind of create a plant that is the biggest, fastest, tallest, best tasting plant. And so we need, um, seeds that have been bred, bred to do that.
0: <clears throat> and is that through, uh, um, just selective breeding
1: Yeah, yeah. The plant, uh, the reason it's, uh, the reason so many of the scholarly articles on the plant are about biofuels is because it produces a ton of flowers and then seeds. And so um, you can, you can, and it also self-pollinates. So you can basically, if you have, let's say you have a hundred plants and one of them is just massive and got there quicker than the others. You
0: can basically put a plastic bag over it, and it will breed with itself, and then oh, wow. um, you'll have thousands of seeds. That's like a, oh, cool. that's like self-quarantine love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm pleased it's not happening around there. Right. So yeah, I think we have to say to to everyone that's listening, you know, the people that are taking the Clorox digestibles, you know, don't 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 put okay. the bag don't put the bag over yourself if you're feeling lonely.
1: <laughs> no and, you know, off the clock, uh
0: a and, and so how much do you produce currently um and what what's your for who? what yeah for who you know as far as restaurants and that kind of thing and c s a s how much are you producing per crop and what would you what's your goal so to speak
1: all right um Good question Matt, we've got one shipping container which is now fully rolling and so the shipping container has four quadrants of plant growth inside and it produces 1200 ounces or about 75 pounds of plant material uh per week wow and and uh, we can it you know so indoor ag is, is an operations game so if you can keep if you can keep the operations going keep a whole bunch of plants happy in the propagation area and they're ready to go into cultivation on time and and at the right size, you can just continue this indefinitely. And that's what, that's why the lettuce growers uh, are, that's why the indoor lettuce growers are capturing such a large market chunk these days. But um, um, we have six containers available out here. We're we're using one and uh, we just received the capital to, uh, to scale into the next six because we're, we're getting orders. For instance, last week we got an order, are about fifteen hundred ounces from the CSA in Jacksonville. Um, that's more than we can produce uh, in a week, and so we're we're kind of scaling up now.
0: That's amazing, and you're you're I- using shipping containers. So, like theoretically, you could actually set these shipping containers up, teach people how to farm, ship, you know, send the shipping containers to another state potentially, so they might be able to open up an operation there. Is that a is that something that had been thought about?
1: Yeah, that's 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 built into our longer-term uh, business model. So we got these shipping containers from a company called Amplified Ag down here in the Charleston area. They have 120 shipping containers growing um, lettuce. Uh, that's uh-huh. that's hundreds of thousands of pounds of lettuce per month, which they supply all of the uh, grocery stores in the area. They're, they're uh, I'm not supposed to say where but they're opening up a very uh, they're opening up a 200 container farm in the southeast uh, pretty soon well, and uh, so we are like their little uh weird brother that inherits all their old tech and so we have these we have these six boxes that they started in six years ago so we have really kind of old tech that we need to update but um uh, the, the the basics are here and and uh, they're, they're a big influence if it's let's change it
0: right and and that
1: gives well, yeah yeah the, the lights to be improved greatly
0: right and that gives you a chance to work out any kinks and uh, you know and and make sure everything's working properly and that you know so when you do upscale it hopefully it's 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 fairly easy to do so
1: yeah there's a lot of kinks we're trying to get one box correct and then and then. And then you're right, Matt. You can basically, if you get one box right, that's the cool thing about um, container farming is that it's 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 modular. And so, if we do one correctly, there's no reason that we couldn't do 100 correctly and have those right. at in different coastal cities um, wherever.
0: Wow. And where does the seawater come from? Or is it seawater? Or are you making? You know, you know, obviously, salt water is not seawater, but are are you using actual Charleston seawater? Do how does that work?
1: So we get our seawater from abundant seafood. They're the main, uh, they're the main uh, specialty fish distributor, or not, or, 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 or fishermen down here. Um, Mark Marheska, their 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 owner, is kind of a local legend. But anyways, when they go off, they go 40 miles offshore, and they fill up a bladder for us, and then we use that as our seawater. And we mix it into a a nutrient solution. Um, and it gets dosed into the into the farm. So we use a, a technique called nutrient film technique, which means that there's a teeny amount of water that trickles along the plant roots. And so, uh, so our entire shipping container only needs about eighty gallons of water per month. Oh no, that wow! But so the cool thing is that when you guys have the oysters, or whenever you have an oyster the oyster farmer will tell you about Meroir and how it's different, you know, in the same estuary, you can have two different tasting oysters based on right. salinity, dissolved oxygen, all those sorts of things, and that's the cool thing about this plant is that it's kind of the oyster of the plant world, and so if you give us seawater from, you know, the Mekong Delta or whatever, our plant will taste like that, and you don't even need the seawater theoretically, you just need the mineral salts um, that have evaporated after the water's evaporated, so uh, yeah, it tastes like whatever water you use, and we use water from 40 miles off the coast of Charleston. That's
0: fascinating. You, do, you, do, you have
1: to, do you have to maintain that water through the process? Or
0: is yeah, it,
1: self- it, it, it? it's the water is completely monitored and controlled. Um, so samples get sent out regularly to find out um, if your the are good. chemicals, constituents sure. of it and we're we're dosing it with with software so the, you imagine there's a there's a reservoir of salt water and there's a few probes in there which measure uh electrical conductivity which is which is a, a measure of salt uh, different kinds of salts and then temperature sure. and things like that and so as the conductivity drops um the main reservoir gets dosed with seawater and nutrients in order to compensate as the plants uptake those, those nutrients. And so the whole thing is, is run by the software. Wow. It's quite a workout.
0: So theoretically you could have like, you could have like a menu of different seawater from around the planet that produce, you know, like, uh, you know, you know, Adriatic Croatian coast sea bean infused, (laughs) You know, you right, could, you right. you could almost have a menu of different. You know, what's uh, that's amazing. I didn't realize there was such a terroir that came out in in sea beans.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a succulent, and so it's which is this is what makes it such a, sh- a hard plant to uh, to ship around because it's ninety nine percent water, and once you cut it away from its roots, it really right. doesn't like you anymore, and doesn't like the packaging. But anyways, yeah. It, it unlike a, a leafy green, uh, which still has a high water content, these, these plants are basically just all water with this photosynthetic cortex, this kind of like photosynthetic green covering and they're just filled with salt water. And That's that, cool. Yeah. Where'd you guys where do you guys ship to? Oh yeah. Uh unsuccessfully and we're getting better at it. Um <laughs> Uh, oh gosh, just all sorts of troubles in the shipping world. I, I wish if you guys have someone in mind that can that can be a better mentor to us, um, we'd love to get better with that. The thing is is if you ship it with the plug on, with the roots on, you can get it you get lots more time. But then all you're right. putting the processing on the customer and the customer might not know where to cut based on the woodiness that we talked about earlier. And so all right. All right. we have for instance, um two days ago we sent five pounds to Venice Beach, California, on two-day shipping. Um, we sent some to Virginia, London, New York. Uh, um, wow. um, and we have a delivery next Tuesday to Nashville. And so you have to get them there fast, and they're expensive to send. But um, our customers in the beginning right now are, are kind of paying the shipping, and so it's helping us out.
0: That's good. Wow. I, I mean, I know... We uh, we had done some work with Taylor Lobster Company up in up in Maine, and they're shipping almost you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of lobster uh, per week to mostly South Korea. And, yeah, and uh, and they're able to do it successfully. But I mean, it's even in this time, you know, shipping is shipping has definitely been affected by what we do right now and what's happening. Right. So it, I'm sure that's sure. I'm sure that's a a a challenge, but you know you've got your you've got your science background, so that's just another part of the challenge of what's what's the best way to ship this. And
1: yeah, it's it's been a fun challenge.
0: Yeah, and that, the, that the, sorry.
1: The uh, the pro, our our least favorite part of it is is all the styrofoam. If you want to pack properly, oh. you need a bunch of styrofoam, and that yeah. really is kind of a burden. Yeah,
0: and that's and, and it's a and it from from harvesting to table. What's the optimum time?
1: Oh gosh, um, I, I do. So when we when the chefs are open again, we send chefs uh, a plant still on the plug, and they cut it off right before they serve it, which is best. But um, it's got about a week shelf life if it's <laughs> in refrigeration with with proper
0: oh that's not bad packaging. That's no, not, not too bad. And t- take us through the the well. You spoke about terroir, but take us through the flavor profile of your sea beans.
1: Okay. Um, you know, the first thing you get is this. you get the salt, and and uh, if you if you overdo it and grow it with too much salt, that's that's really kind of offensive to. People's palate. Um, Some of the natural places where it grows in these hypersaline tidal flats, uh, it really kind of hurts your throat. There's a lot of oxalic acid in it. But um, we try to keep the salts uh, at at a lower salinity than than in full-strength seawater. Um, And us and all the other mammals evolved to like salt because we need it for our our brains to send electricity and our cells to transport. Um, ions around, and and so salt is salt makes a human very happy just if you get it in the right quantity. Right. But um, and, and is I it, would I would compare it to a spinach stem uh, that, that has that's been seasoned with salt. Say that again. It sort of tastes like the stem of a young spinach leaf that has been seasoned with salt.
0: That sounds delightful. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: And I saw I saw on your website um, a couple of cocktails being produced. Is it a margarita? Uh, yeah, we've it's it's been just you know a couple of weeks since the harvest, and we've seen we've seen like a Salicornia martini or sea bean or sea asparagus or whatever um, martini, and and uh, uh, we've seen it in. Uh, definitely a few margaritas and then bloody marys have popped up as well. I'm uh, sure. That's cool. That, that all interests
0: me greatly. I've, that's my favorite uh, uh, end product of the plant. Yeah, that's so cool. That's the fun part. The creative part is is yeah, looking beyond the versatility. right the right. versatility of it and looking beyond you know what it can do and what it you know fr- from from just the the culinary side. How how have chefs. Now you've only been open since April, and I'm sure chefs around South Carolina are probably dying to get their hands on your product and and work with it. What are some of the creations that the chefs in the area and some of the restaurants have have done with success and or failure?
1: Well, dude, Matt, we've seen some neat stuff come out. So, uh, in the chef world, we've seen we've seen it be the salt component to a sourdough bread um, after it's been desiccated or dried um we've seen the most popular thing right now is to pair it <clears throat> is to put it on a crudo and so to serve it right on top of a piece of raw fish uh with with maybe a little bit of lemon juice and olive oil and that mm-hmm. way you're not adding you're not adding any salt to the to your crudo mm-hmm. um, we've seen it in the of course just you know it, it's an easy um it's an easy thing to put on top of a salad or into a salad um, we've seen it turned into a mignonette frequently and served Ooh. on top of a, a raw oyster.
0: And, oh, we may have to connect, and, connect those two with our last podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> Definitely. Um, um, we've seen it cooked into tortillas and all sorts of things. And, and in the beverage world, we've done a, we've done a Goza, we're working on our second Goza. And now we have, uh, a, a really interesting one in the pipeline, which is that a, a local kombucha company down here called Dalia Sophia Sofia um, is coming out with uh, basically a mineral water, and they will take our stems and such, uh, the the basically our byproduct, and they'll boil it down and uh, add that to the mineral water to give it the. To, in order to classify it as mineral water, it kind of needs these 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 salts, but it also gives it a little hint of. It's kind of like if you eat, drink one of those uh, electrolyte waters or, or gain yeah, yeah, yeah. a fair amount of sodium
0: right. that's a that's a unusual way of using byproduct <laughs> absolutely yeah and do they you yeah. know some something like that something like a kombucha do they seek you out is it how you know that's that's an unusual relationship like hey do you have any unused sea beans that we could use for kombucha yeah <laughs> oh. hey,
1: well, no we I'll be, that'd be cool. I, I think we're going to get to a point one day where people are reaching out like that. But um, this was just a uh, marriage of convenience because the same guy that did the logo and branding for Heron Farms did it for this kombucha company. And we were like, dude, like, the hell do we do with all these stems? And he's like, <laughs> try to get it into beverages. And that turned out to start to work.
0: Wow. Next, next, That's awesome. next step will have to be a sea bean grappa. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking I'm looking at some dishes uh one coming out of chubby fish which is the big eye tuna crudo which just the artistic display of that just looks it is incredible but you can almost taste it looking at it. And It is a, it's a beautiful looking plant. It's a gorgeous plant. And yeah. it it obviously serves as an artistic there's an artistic component to it as, as well as a flavor component to it. And the actual, if you look on your website and you look at those dishes, when the sea bean is cut up like that and just put on raw flounder, tuna, you know, uh swordfish, you're eating that whole stem right there, right? There's no, you know, there's no woody part in that.
1: Oh, oh gosh, no, no, no. Okay. It's a, uh yeah i need to update the website i'm sorry how it's it's, be- back, it's, be- it's back beautiful in january it's beautiful um, <laughs> it, it, it we've been under kind of underwater over the last few weeks um with this <laughs> <hug>. <laughs> and uh the uh the the team went from just me to about eight of us all within the last month and so that's all nice. we're it's we're in scramble mode and and but anyways um, if you were eating it at a restaurant, there would definitely not be any woodiness, and you can usually cook the woodiness down or kind of right. uh, Sorry. Um, blanch it out. But but yeah, the nice thing about the crudo uh, is that it it's just fish and and salicornia, so it's kind of
0: uh.
1: it, it, it makes it look very pretty. Although it's a strange plant to someone never seen it. I mean, it is a very strange looking kind of alien succulent plant.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's and that's why I was asking. You know, it's just it's it's unusual, it's beautiful, um, and packs a flavor punch that probably you know obviously wakes up not only seafood, but but many other uh, ingredients as well.
1: And a lot of people don't know about it. Yes, it's, uh, in America, especially, um, it's, it's much more common in coastal Europe, but. Um, right. Um, the chefs kind of knew about it, which was why our whole business model was go to chefs. And then we had to scramble for the CSA thing. So a lot of people around the Southeast are kind of, I say a lot, it's about a thousand a week. It's not that many, but it's, you know, a, a thousand people, most of which have never heard of this plant or tried it before are getting it in their CSAs alongside their, you know, eggs and bread. And they're like, the is and they kind of, out, uh, <laughs> and, and then when they, when they tag us on Instagram, you get to see their creations. And that's always fun. Of yeah course.
0: and that's that seems like the best way to get your you know uh, you know marketing and and advertising your product is just through what chefs are are doing with such a an amazing ingredient uh, that's unbelievable
1: yeah. the, the the so the, the reason we did the chef model um, and and as soon as the restaurants are reopened, we'll return to that is because uh, the a few decades ago, no one had heard of the avocado in America, and especially right. on, the Co- on the east coast. On the east coast, so the the California Growers Association realized they could grow this delicious Mexican jungle fruit um, consistently, but then they didn't know what the hell to do with it afterwards. So they called it the alligator pear, and they would bring it to the markets in Los Angeles, and no one was buying. But then they they decided to take a new ra- route. and... Uh, call it the avocado and sell it to chefs in San Francisco and LA and those chefs ended up teaching people, hey, look, this is kind of a luxury good and this is how you should eat it when it's ripe and, and what to pay. And we're kind of uh, trying to copy that model, although with a lot less success. Well it's
0: it's All so- right. it sounds like it sounds like you're getting there.
1: <laughs> and the day is young. That's right.
0: And, like a few, man. and how how has it been as far as regulation goes, uh, with the state working with the state growing, you know, working with agriculture. Um, this is probably the first time in the state that commercial sea beans have been grown in the state of South Carolina, or I may be wrong, but how has that been working with the state and just trying to, to uh, keep up with that? And has that been helpful or or not helpful? Supportive, not supportive. Yeah, it's
1: been very supportive. Um, well, in the in your last episode with the oyster farmer, uh, he mentioned that he was on the board of the Farm Bureau, and that's because uh, a lot of the oyster industry is trying to get regulated as Department of Agriculture. Um, they want to fall under agriculture, and that's because the USDA and the local, the state um, departments of agriculture are extremely friendly to new businesses, especially those who have. Uh, Diversified products, and they're not just soybeans or corn. Um, And then, on top of that, if you're if you're uh, in a younger age bracket, they really want you to be farming, and they don't care what you're growing. So the average age of a farmer in South Carolina is 59. Uh, It went down last year for the first time uh, since they started recording that data. So that's good news. New farmers are getting into the pipeline, but. They're yeah. just, yeah, they're very supportive. I- I'm rambling, but th- but they're very supportive and and that's awesome. uh, and uh, there there isn't a regulatory body, right? You know, I, there there isn't a seawater regulatory body for the country. There will be in a century or ne- or so, but um, there isn't right now. So we're kind of making it as we go. Wow, and that's in, that's in your favor, I guess. Uh we'll see I, I, I. it seems to be but um, I mean the oyster industry thought a lot of things were in their favor and then it all just kind right. of yep. but, you know one, one, one powerful person that doesn't yeah. want your industry to exist can do a lot of harm so yeah, abs- I hear that absolutely yep.
0: But, yep. Yeah. and we, we've come across that with several guests uh, that have had yeah. major challenges yeah. doing yeah. the right thing and everyone thinks farming is, is you know I'm a farmer and I, I get supported by everyone and right. you know I'm, it, I'm doing it, the right thing says- says higher powers that can screw us up real quick yeah yeah and are you, con- yeah. are, you are you still um, working to uh, you know restore work with other scientists because not only are you growing you have the science behind it you also might uncover some discoveries that might help out restoring uh, you know coastal ecosystems with your product how, has that come up
1: yes that's what uh that's what that's how this started and, and that's we're working on two different restoration projects right now and they they uh i won't go too far down the rabbit hole because this is food and bed right. um, cool. podcast but um basically in in charlton and savannah in norfolk And a lot of these southeastern ports and a lot of ports around the world, there are what are called confined disposal facilities. And these are areas where they put dredged material. Um, So they deepen the harbor, they make room for bigger ships, and they put a lot of that material offshore. But some of the material that's either contaminated or um, too heavy because of the types of sediments they are, they put them in these large, really large, uh, confined areas which used to be marsh so they basically turned a bunch they'd say turned three thousand three hundred acres of marsh and they is in the army corps um into confined disposal facilities for dredging material back in uh the clean water act came around in the 1960s so
0: yeah and that's uh, those, that's unfortunate
1: yeah, it is it's, it is it is unfortunate for them it's it's the good uh it's it's cost effective and so we uh are, have grown plants on these areas because if you don't if you dredge a bunch of muddy salty uh, substance into a confined area well the water evaporates and you're left behind with really salty um, mud and so nothing will grow there except for a couple of plants and so we're bringing salicornia to those areas to remediate them and they they bring salt from the root zone in and, and, and the soil up into the upper parts of the plant, and it decreases the salt content in the soil, allowing for other plants to come in and colonize, and, and uh, it's like a marsh band. This is what it does in the wild, um, and we've still opted it to do it in a dredge area. And then back in January, realized that the confined rice paddies of coastal Asia uh, uh, had similar Uh, characteristics to the confined dredge sites of America. And what I mean by that is that they're much smaller in Asia, so you can imagine a basketball court-sized rice paddy, but it's completely enclosed, and it gets flooded by seawater in the winter, and that seawater evaporates and is behind salt. And so in February, I went with a a German friend to Bangladesh, and we traveled around with the Ministry of Ag in Bangladesh, and we planted sea beans, and, and seven other uh, of these halophytes um, in rice paddies in order to pull salt out of the soil, give the farmer a different crop during the winter when they're not growing the rice. And then the theory is um, when they plant rice next year, there will be less salt content in the soil, and so the rice yield will go up. And we just got our first pictures last week of our farmers in Coastal Bangladesh eating sea beans out of a out of a temporary marsh or is <laughs> That's awesome. That's
0: amazing, and yeah. and and by doing that, you know a diverse a diverse ecosystem is a healthier ecosystem. Yeah. And yeah. You know we we have we live uh, up in New York in the Hudson Valley, and and when you're speaking about dredging and contaminants, we have this we have the same problem in the Hudson River, and oh, yeah. we, the the contaminants. There's a big Bat, not battle, but to going back and forth on you know whether parts of the Hudson should be dredged or not to get sure. rid of the contaminants, and it's it seems like it leave it alone at the bottom, keep it covered, don't disturb it. Um, and and is the way to the right, go, right? And trying to restore areas with native plants as opposed to uh, invasive plants like Phragmites.
1: Oh gosh, Phragmites, So. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole. Sorry. Fragmites. <laughs> <But> Phrag- <laughs> Phrag- is a tall bastard that kind of uh, uh, sure. gets into these confined disposal facilities. They, they get. They get inhabited by two plants. Fragmites. After a, after a few years, but in the very beginning, a uh, a plant called tamarisk, which is salt cedar, and salt cedar has seeds, which which have little parachutes attached to them, and so they blow around with the wind and they land on these and find disposal facilities, and then they colonize them. And so that's why we're building this this drone to drop um, halophyte seeds, native seeds, because we're kind of stealing the chemist model of having your seeds be airborne. We'll see if it works.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so you've done this around you've done this in bangladesh you've come back here you're you're hoping to restore uh, more marsh with native plants by taking away the excess salt using sea beans
1: well not 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 just sea beans but it's it's the most salt tolerant of all the halophytes so Got it's you. kind of the first to, it's the first one to go uh, right. into an area and it's invested and uh, getting the remediation process started, and then and then you need perennial grasses like Spartina to come in after. Right, that's
0: that's complex. And it, and if people are foraging for sea beans, people still you know obviously do forage for it. We've had an issue. You know, we're in the process of everyone's foraging right now for ramps up in up in yeah. the northeast but so many people have foraged and they're such slow growers that it's actually become a problem and it's getting harder and harder to find ramps. Right. Um, And are sea beans that way? Number one. And number two, do if, if sea beans are grown in contaminated areas, do they, does that accumulate in, in the actual uh, sea bean itself?
1: yeah that's a it's a big problem the, well, I, I need to distinguish this that the people foraging for sea beans is not a big problem because they it's very the perennial ancestor is everywhere in the marsh and it's not as good to eat um, as the annual, but people don't usually know the difference and so it's it's not under any pressure of foraging. um the annual will be good. but it's it's hard to find um, uh, and yes, so. The one of the one of the things I found out during the master's research was that if you take all the Google Scholar results for halophytes and you and you plot them on a graph and then you code them based on their keywords, you find that the the the, the majority of publications on halophytes either has to do with restoration or it has to do with agriculture, and the reason it is a good restorative plant is because it accumulates um, heavy metals really well. And so that's what also makes it kind of scary to eat out of an environment. If you happen to be next to a marina or a harbor, um, you probably shouldn't eat those plants or any quantity of those plants.
0: (laughs) That makes sense. That makes sense. That's also another, that's another reason to get it grown at a farm. Uh, unless you know the area that you're foraging from,
1: that's right. Well, hopefully we can be back in a position in a few decades or so where there aren't any areas of marsh that are unforageable because we start to clean up our our, our mess. Um, yeah. Right? yeah, we'll we'll see, but but that would be nice. Yeah.
0: Well, and,
1: the, and in, yeah. in this situation, maybe it sounds like waters are getting back to how they're supposed to be um
0: whether they remain this? that way is a different story.
1: Right, right. Well, right. we we can hope. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't you don't hear about that on the uh on the mainstream uh news outlets. But this is really no. the greatest spring spring we've ever had on record in terms of um, the fisheries coming back, the yeah. the yeah. The, uh, the migrating birds. Um uh, amazing. It's all, you know, they're all a bit confused because of they're like, oh my god! All we have to do is, <laughs> is the- give, a, give a virus to the humans, and they'll stay away from us. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. it's pretty, yeah. pretty awesome if you're a dolphin or a, uh, or, absolutely. Or a heron. But, absolutely, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. it's it's mother- economic turmoil
1: for humans and, and just a heyday for all the animals and plants.
0: It's Mother Nature's really? way of uh, of it's saying, "Giving sh- us time out, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shh, quiet. Yeah, just, to sh- yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, let me fix this problem.
0: Wow, That'd be great."
1: And people can uh, go on your website and order from you? Uh, they can. Um, they can they can put in the inquiry for as much as they want on the website, and we're trying to we're kind of scrambling right now to get the certifications necessary to be yeah. in larger retail environments like Whole Foods um, and to have that kind of scale and to have the right protocols. But um, right. right now, yeah, they can order it on the website, and if they help us with the shipping, we'll send it to them. That's fascinating. And we'll, 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 um, we'll put links when, uh, when we post the podcast and, uh, hopefully people will come through and enjoy. Hopefully. And hopefully we'll, maybe they'll wait just a couple of weeks cause we're, we're, we're trying to scale up right now and, and have more, uh, supply. that's great.
0: Well, we, we actually have some friends that, uh, are, are right down in South Carolina, uh, right now, and uh, I have a couple of neighbors that are actually driving down there as we speak, so I might speak with them and have them get in touch with you and maybe bring back some uh, sea beans on their way home. And take That's some good, pictures. Matt. Yeah, <laughs> to come to the farm. Yeah. Absolutely, that'd be awesome. And uh, and I'm not sure if Tyler wants me to go over this, but he did mention um, he he's, he's a, a fantastic distiller, and South Carolina is is very lucky to have Tyler Lacorda down there, opening up his own operation down there. Since we lost them. Since we lost them up in New York. And right. uh, he has mentioned that he, he's got his sights set on, on you and Seabeans and doing, uh, I won't give it away, but some kind of Seabean-inspired spirit. So I, I'm. Oh yeah. I'm. Uh, I, I'm. If if I know Tyler and what he's planning, it's going to be something pretty amazing to drink.
1: Yeah. That's oh awesome. my gosh. We're, we're all the whole team is really excited about this because Tyler. I, I didn't know Tyler. He just kind of popped up, kind uh, of our radar within the last month, and we started going back and forth. And um, yeah, we're all really excited to see what what he brings to the Charleston area, and then of course what uh, he creates with this with the product that that we
0: care so much about that's amazing it's gonna be it's gonna be good it's gonna be good it's gonna
1: be great it's gonna be good
0: well uh, well sam thank you so much for joining us thank you for the education thank you for the background in on sea beans and i think it just makes me makes us you know when we have your sea beans we now know the story behind it which is amazing well that was
1: really fun Matt and rich and you guys uh when you get mobile again, um, come down to Charleston. I've got extra space in the house, and you guys can kayak around. We can find some in the wild, and, and, and visit the farm, and, and all that good stuff. Oh, that's, that's awesome. That's amazing.
0: We'll we'll, right. we'll, we'll, we'll grab our Chesapeake's and uh, uh, put them on.
1: I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 And and if Tyler's distillery is open by then, we'll have a few glasses of whatever elixirs he's, he's making.
0: I think that's even a-
1: if it, even if it's not, we will.
0: That is a that is a definite <laughs> plan when we come out of this and I think we might be we might have to bring some kind of camera crew down with us. That'd be <laughs> That'd be awesome. Well thank you, Sam. Uh Thanks, if you, if you want to find uh obviously you'll see it on the podcast, but it's Heron Heron as in Great Blue Heron or the old cranky style. Um HeronFarms dot com and um all their information and check out some of their dishes uh on on the website. They're gorgeous so absolutely so thank you until we meet again sam uh, uh take good, care good luck and uh we will hopefully see you soon
1: all right matt thanks so much rich thank you uh i hope to see you guys in person one day soon and and uh thanks for the support you guys have such an awesome hilarious podcast uh <laughs> we'll, we'll all keep listening to it i the team here
0: spread it <laughs> the love <laughs> cheers Thanks for stopping by and listening in. Check us out as well as other great podcasts at Food and Beverage Magazine's Podcast Network. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And remember to eat, imbibe, and dream. See you next show.